Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. So what is so remarkable about this text. Those of us that have grown up in the church recognize this as the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, the way that we read it now. And um, we might ask ourselves, 
What's the significance? And why is this first? If Mark was the earliest written gospel, which it probably was, why does this book go first? Why do we have Matthew first? Well, Matthew is doing some very interesting things in his book, and we'll look at some of the structural things in later lessons. But uh, basically, Matthew is writing to his fellow Jews. He's writing to the Jewish people of the time to let them know the Messiah has come, the Messiah you've been expecting, the Messiah you've been waiting on. And that Messiah is this Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And because you're not going to believe that, I've got to tell you the whole story. And when I tell you the whole story, maybe you'll believe it and understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And that may not mean what you think it means. So this is Matthew's goal in writing this book. And because he's writing primarily to his fellow Jews of the time, people who were already possibly God-fearing, already knowledgeable of Scripture, remember the Scripture that they had at this time would be the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Matthew is writing to people that may be familiar with some of those things and have been brought up being taught those things, have been brought up in a culture where those things are sort of foundational to their culture, their their ethics, their morality, uh, even their, their politics and, and sort of their kingdom structure is all based on, on things from the Old Testament. And so when Matthew starts right out of the gate, he begins with an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And something that's happening here in the Greek that we don't see in English is the words that Matthew is using. He's using words, uh, biblios uh, geneesis, something like that. Basically, uh, a Genesis, Genesis Bible, or the, kind of the words. You hear that, those cognate words. What does that mean? Well, biblios, Bible, just means book. And Genesis, as we know, just means beginning, the beginning of something. That's why we call the first book of the Bible Beginnings, Genesis. It's based off of the Greek title of that book. And so um, when Matthew begins his gospel, he begins right out of the gate by saying, this is the book, the account, this is the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Okay. Not talking about Jesus having a beginning because Jesus as God is, was and is and is to come but talking about it in the Genesis sense, how these things uh, came to be known, came to be revealed to life on earth. And so right out of the gate, we see him using the idea of Genesis. And right away, that takes us to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see John will do a similar thing in his gospel in John chapter one, when he says in the beginning was the word, right? And he tries to make that connection with Genesis as well. Matthew is doing the same thing. Also, he's drawing from exact language from Genesis chapter 5, which is the first genealogy in the Bible. It's the first genealogy in Genesis. If you watched us, uh, if you were with us during the Genesis series, then you'll remember genealogies play an important part in Genesis. They are act breaks, they're storytelling, and they're giving you, um, really nailing down some history of historical people that are important to the story of God. And so the first one of those is in chapter five, where it's the genealogy of Adam and the sons of Adam. So right away with the first couple of words of Matthew's gospel in the Greek, Matthew is triggering your memory to the book of Genesis, and he's using the exact words that are used in the Greek version of uh, Genesis chapter 5. If you go to the Septuagint, if you look at the Greek version of Genesis chapter 5, the first words there are the same, that, that same Biblios Genesis. That This is an account of the beginnings of the sons of Adam. And so you have the same thing here, an account of the genealogy 
but this time it's of Jesus instead of Adam. And it goes all the way from Abraham all the way down to uh, Jesus himself. So that's very critical to understanding what Matthew's goal is. So remember the purpose of our lessons is to look at the storytelling and see how the storytelling might inform what it is that we're reading and help us focus on the right things and understand them correctly, hear them as they would have been heard originally. So if you're a first century Jew and you hear someone say, Biblios Genesis, you immediately, you think they're quoting Genesis chapter five because you would be familiar with that as a, as a key text of Torah, something that you would hear often in synagogue. And also remember, we might find that a little hard to believe because we don't immediately recognize pieces of scripture all the time. Certainly big ones we do. If I said, for God to love the world, you know which scripture that I'm talking about. If I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would know the scriptures that I'm talking about. If I said, the Lord is my shepherd, you would know what scriptures that I'm talking about. And we live in a written culture. Well, if you live in an oral culture, which was the predominant culture this time, certainly there was lots of writing and lots of things being written. But most of the followers of God throughout all of history have been hearing the word rather than reading it, right? Because uh, even today, many of the cultures that receive the gospel are illiterate or maybe don't have a Bible written into their language yet. And that's been the case for all of the history of Christianity and even uh, before, before Christ. So when I say the first hearers, I mean that very literally. It was maybe not possible for them to either have a copy or to be able to read it if they did have a copy. And so instead they would hear it. They would hear it being read out loud by somebody else. And so this is one point that I'd like to make just kind of on the side, which is it is so critical, not just to study the Bible, but it is very critical that you get together with somebody else and read the Bible out loud to each other. So scripture is meant to be read, but scripture is really meant to be read out loud. It's really meant to be read out loud to another person. It's not so much meant to be read just alone. It's good to read alone and meditate in the scriptures and you should do that, but you should not neglect to get together and read the Bible out loud with somebody else. So if you are staying at home, if you're sequestering at home right now, you've got uh, maybe a spouse or family members in the house with you, I hope. If you're alone, you can call somebody or get on Skype or FaceTime and read Bible passages out loud with each other. Discovery Bible study is a great way to do that. You take little bite-sized chunks of scripture and read them to each other, read them out loud. There is, I don't know what it is. It's hard to explain, but there is some new power of scripture that is unlocked when you read it out loud with somebody rather than just sitting there and reading it to yourself in your mind in silence. So that's the first thing that I want to say is that throughout all of history, scripture has been read out loud and we need to continue that practice because there's something special about it. So the first hearers of this Matthew, what we call Matthew chapter one, the beginning of Matthew, they would immediately understand that because they're a hearing culture, they, they would pick up on more verses than we do. They would have to commit them to memory because they got no way to write them down because they don't know how to write or they're illiterate or they um, don't understand the language. And so they would understand with their ears a lot more. They would recognize with their ears a lot more than we would, than, than we're accustomed to. Also, Let's be honest, they were more faithful in their study of scripture than we were. It was more central to their culture and to their way of living. Even if they were way off base or really misunderstood some things, it was so central to Jewish culture, even in the first century, even as Greek as the first century Judaism had become. It was so uh, essential to their culture. Whereas if we're really honest, 21st century Christianity 
somehow exists without really getting into scripture a lot. And it's very sad. We need to change that. Those of us listening here can do, can be the, the ones to change that. So, um, so the first hearers of Matthew chapter one would immediately have recognized, certainly it's pointing to Genesis, but they, I think they would have even recognized he's specifically tying this into Genesis chapter five, that first genealogy of Seth. And just like those genealogies in Genesis tell us one story has ended and a new story has begun, the gospel of Matthew does the same thing. The gospel of Matthew right out of the gate to the first hearers essentially says the things that you know about in your Hebrew scriptures, those stories have some, in some way have come to an end and a new story is beginning. A new thing is beginning. So that's the first part of great news is that it is new. And the, the corollary to that is that it's shared. It's spoken out loud to somebody else. So it's new and it's shared. So what is this good news? So he, he says, hey, this is the genealogy of Jesus. So it looks really boring to us. There's a lot of complicated names. We don't know how to pronounce all of them. Uh, you look at me and you go, my, my goodness, Paul, how, how did you know how to pronounce all those names? Well, I don't. I uh, get real close and you just say them loud and fast and everybody thinks that you know how to say them. And the real trick is when they're twice in a row and you have to remember how you just pronounced it right before then. So a um, little trick in case you ever get called on to read this in uh, scripture reading at church. But we look at this when it's a long list of names and it's a genealogy and it seems really boring. But just like Genesis, there's story that's being told here. There, th this is a heralding announcement. Good news, a new thing is beginning. And it's very, very important because it's more people coming into the story of God. So genealogy was a very important thing in Eastern culture, still is. It's even today, if you go to any kind of Eastern, Middle Eastern culture, they don't ask, what do you do? They don't define you, your identity by your work. You know what they ask? Who's your father? Who's your family? They identify you by where you come from who you are begat from, right? That's what they want to know. And so in this Middle Eastern culture at this time, it was the same. Where do you come from? And so if Jesus is going to be testified to be this Messiah, people got some questions. How do you know he's the Messiah? Where does he come from? Because if they find out he comes from Nazareth, you know what the Pharisees said? Oh, good grief. Does any prophet come from Nazareth? I don't think so. You know, they didn't have a very high opinion of, of Nazareth uh, or of much going on up in the Galilee. And so Matthew's making a case. He's making a case. This Jesus guy, he's important. And he's so important, I'm going to speak as if I'm writing scripture. So this is another thing that we can stop and talk about. Uh, there's a lot of talk that, you know, people wrote these things down and they wrote these stories down and they didn't really realize how important they were and they became important later. No, Matthew knows right out of the gate what he's writing is essentially an extension of scripture. Is essentially, is essentially bridging the gap from the what we call the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scripture understanding to something new that is happening in the person and work, ministry, and um, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, Matthew's telling a very important story. So what is it? What is the story? Well, a couple of things. First of all, there is some big parallels being drawn to Moses. Well, that makes sense. Who's the most important person in Hebrew theological culture? Well, it's Moses. He was the prophet in the beginning. He was the one that went up on the mountain and brought down the law, right? 
He's the one that spoke face to face with God like a friend. And so you're going to see many things in Matthew that are comparing Jesus to Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is better than Moses, right? A theme which is continued even in the book of Hebrews, the sermon uh, to uh, the Hebrew church. So Matthew is right away capturing his fellow Hebrews' attention, letting them know what's happening is important, it's new, and it's a continuation of God's story. It is new scripture. And it's about someone that is taking on the role of Moses. In fact, what we're going to see um, structure-wise in the Gospel of Matthew is it's kind of broken into five big chunks. There's these five um, big uh, sections of sort of what Jesus is doing, and it's sort of interspersed with narrative, the first one being the Sermon on the Mount. So here again, you have Jesus ascending a mountain and coming down with a law, essentially, is what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. This is this idea of the Moses figure. He goes up on the mountain and the, the law is given, right? So it's a, it's a play on that idea. Matthew's trying to tell you, if you like Moses, you're going to love Jesus, right? That's what he's saying. And so everything here, beginning with Abraham and going through all this stuff is letting you know, this is the new Moses. And it's probably important for him to do that because he's from the tribe of Judah. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not a priest, um, uh, like from the tribe of Levi. And so if he's going to perform some sort of theological um, salvation duty, then there's got to be some explanation for that. And so Matthew's giving, uh, he's witnessing. We use that word witnessing to sort of tell our personal story and that kind of thing. But think about what that word just really means. Like when you go to court, when you witness, you just testify to the things that you know and things that you've seen. So what Matthew is doing is he is being a witness. He's arguing a defense of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, and that he is actually, as we will find out, the Son of God. So first, before we get into the Son of God things, Matthew makes the Hebrew case. Well, here's his Hebrew lineage, all the people that he comes from, traced all the way back to Abraham and coming from the lineage of King David, which is very important. That And so right out of the gate, he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then we get all the generations going down through here. And this is when the story gets really good. And this is why Matthew chapter one is a great transition from the story of David to the story of Jesus. Because David is mentioned right here in this genealogy. But before we get to him, there's a couple other people before we get to David and his curious mention here in this genealogy. First, we get to Judah. And we talked a lot about Judah during the Genesis series and how Judah is really the main character of Genesis. In Judah, in chapter, I think it's chapter 38, you have the story of Judah and Tamar. And Judah does this really heinous set of things. It's a very, um, it's a difficult story to read and talk about. Not a lot of people preach out of this story because it's kind of difficult to do, especially in mixed company when children are around. And yet here it is, verse three, the fourth line of the genealogy, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why would you do that? Why would you bring this terrible thing that went on, why would you bring that into the story? Well, as we learned in Genesis, that story starts terribly, but ends up being the genesis of forgiveness. The forgiveness, the reconciliation doesn't really happen until Judah gets back with Joseph and understands that Joseph is still alive and there's a chance for that relationship to be redeemed. That doesn't happen until a couple of chapters later. But when Judah 
sees his sin with Tamar. He takes responsibility. He takes responsibility for it. And he's the first person in Genesis to say, I sinned, I take responsibility for it, and I won't do it anymore. And he never slept with her again after that, after she had these children. And so Judah is the first person to really understand what sin is, the consequences it has, and makes a change because of it. So two really amazing things are happening by including this verse. First of all, it's not shying away from the really difficult things of our history, of our past, not just our personal histories and past, because all of us have dark and terrible and evil things in our personal histories and past, but in our histories and past as, as a people. You know, there's, there's a lot of this going on in the political world right now where we look back at some of the evils that our nation has been involved in. Things like American slavery, which is a heinous evil. Scripture speaks out against clearly slave trading, being uh, evil and, and murderous, uh, Paul says in one of his letters. And um, we're having to sort of come to terms with that, right? And we can't shy away from it or we, we can't learn from it. We can't shy away from it or we're doomed to repeat it. We must understand what it is and figure out where does this go in our history? And so it would be very easy for Jews of the time to only look back at people like Abraham, who was the great man of faith and, okay, oh, King David, the mighty king, you know, and shy away from some of the more difficult stories like Judah and Tamar, which is a tough story. Here it is. It's line four in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the perfect human, the son of God, the Messiah. So in this new thing that's happening, Matthew is letting us know from the very beginning when Jesus enters the world, he doesn't shy away from the evil. He redeems it. He overcomes it. But if we can't recognize it, it can't be redeemed. It can't be reconciled. Remember, the first thing Judah had to do before he found forgiveness was to own up to his sin and what he did. The second thing that it does, this line that's really amazing, is it includes the name of a woman. You'll notice everybody else here, for the most part, is a man. Well, that was typical of genealogies. Again, go back and look at the genealogies of Genesis. It's almost all men. In fact, we rarely heard about daughters being born unless they were important to the story. For instance, the daughter Dinah uh, that's born. We know about her because there's a story that happens with her later on. There were probably many daughters that were born to uh, Jacob, but we know about Dinah because there's a story about her. It's what happens in a patriarchal society. It's primarily run by men. It's passed down through men. In this genealogy, we see the name of a woman right away. We're learning something about this Jesus, that he has a regard for women, for downtrodden, for the forgotten, for the oppressed, for the lied to, for the sexually mistreated, sexually assaulted. All of these are just in the person of Tamar. And Matthew is letting us know Jesus has not forgotten a person like this. In fact, Jesus lifts this person up. In fact, we will see Jesus would rather spend time with Tamar than with Judah. Jesus would rather spend time with someone who is hurting, someone who has been cheated, someone who is um, desperate for family and for love and togetherness and honor. And um, Jesus would rather spend time with someone like that than someone like Judah who, who thinks he knows the best way to do things himself. So already in, in the third verse of Matthew, we're getting into this really deep and difficult theology. Imagine being a hearer, a Hebrew hearer in the first century and hearing these things and, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, he's not 10 seconds into this, this gospel that he's reading. It's like, hang, hang on, I got some problems with this. But he keeps going. 
And we get down to verse five. We see Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Well, who was Rahab? She was a harlot, right? Tamar dressed like a prostitute in order to seduce Judah. Rahab was a harlot and she's not even a Jew, right? We learned that from the story of uh, Jericho and Joshua where she uh, takes in the spies and eventually uh, converts and becomes a member of the family of God by marrying Boaz. There's no need to mention her in this genealogy unless, once again, you want people to know Jesus looks out for those who are desperate to join the family of God. And already, even though the idea that Gentiles becoming a part of the Jewish faith community would not be something that would really solidify until the book of Acts, you see right here in the fifth verse of Matthew, Matthew, Jesus, the Holy Spirit through Matthew is hinting at us already. People outside of Jewish lineage are going to be part of what Jesus is doing. This is huge news. This is great news. So there's a new thing happening. It needs to be shared with everyone. And by everyone, we mean everyone. This is further hammered home right after that with Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Ruth was not a woman of ill repute, but she was a Moabitess. If you remember, Moab was one of the sons from one of Lot's daughters that was conceived in incest. The Moabites were, were considered off limits because they were, they were uh, products of incest, even so many generations later. And again, Matthew is saying, no one is off limits to the love and grace of Jesus. So then we read further, Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. It doesn't even say Bathsheba. It just says Uriah's wife. If it said Bathsheba, that would have been enough because it would remind us of the adultery that King David committed with Bathsheba. And it would let us know that even though King David was a sinful, vile, evil man, Jesus still loved him and he's still part of Jesus's lineage. But by calling her Uriah's wife, it calls more to mind than just the adultery, although it really hammers home the adultery part, reminding this was somebody else's wife. But it also reminds of the murder, the cover-up, the lying, and also the forgiveness, Psalm 51. And so we see someone like Uriah's wife, someone who was stolen, even if she was maybe willing to spend the night with the king. Would it have mattered if she was willing? Could she really give her consent when she is a, a subject of a kingdom who, who apparently is going to do what he wants and has no regard for any kind of consequences? Is it possible for her to really truly give full consent? And so here, once again, we see that Jesus is going to lift up women and support them in a way that no culture has before or since. And finally, so that's four women that are mentioned right here. And there's where we see the connection to David back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and Bathsheba. But it ends down here in verse 16 with a fifth woman, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary. Again, why mention Mary? Well, obviously she's going to be important to the story. Those of us that know the Christ story know that well. But there's another reason. It's, she's a fifth woman. There are now five women here. So again, remember, Matthew is trying to compare Jesus to Moses. Moses wrote five books. That number five is really associated with Moses. Those five books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books of the Torah, that's really associated with Moses. And what Matthew is trying to say there here is 
I'm going to hammer home this number five because that number five is really significant of Moses. And I just want you to know from Abraham and thinking about David and thinking about this number five and, and the, with the genealogy in every way possible, I'm going to keep reminding you that Jesus is the new Moses, is the better Moses, is um, to be more highly regarded than Moses. Whatever you think of Moses, Jesus is above that. And so here we begin, Matthew, with a genealogy. Curious to us in America, why would you start that way? Not a very good beginning to a movie or whatever, you know. But if you are a first century Jew and you're hearing this, right away you understand the significance of the story you're about to hear. And I hope that I've impressed upon you the significance of the story that we're going to be studying in the coming weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. I've had a lot of good, fun news to share this week, and I'm happy to share it with you. But this, this is the great news. This is the greatest news in the history of the universe. I had somebody ask me tonight as we were doing some Bible study, we mentioned the word gospel and he said, what, what is the gospel really? And he kind of held up his Bible and he said, is, is this the gospel, this whole thing? And, and yes, yes, it is. But in short, the gospel is this. We were enemies of God. Christ died so that we could be friends with God and not just friends, but adopted as sons and daughters, children of God. And not just children, but co-heirs with Christ. We're not equal with Christ, but we are treated as equal with Christ. And when we're treated as equal with Christ, we're saved from any terrible thing that may happen to us eternally. And it gives us great joy and a fulfilling life while we wait to be with him forever. So I pray that you would come to know the great joy that is found in the Gospel of Matthew, that you would come to see this as really great news and that you would share it out loud with someone you love this week. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.